We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Such a delight for Debbie and I to be here with you. Uh, I can't remember the last time we came, but it's been a few years, and we always appreciate your kindness and your sincerity and your food. Uh, blessing to be with you. And you can't know how much it encourages us to sit here and be here in a prayer meeting and know that you pray this way for people. You know, there are many things you can do in a church, but there are four things that cannot be absent in the church, according to, according to Acts 2.42. And it's the preaching of God's word. It's the fellowship of God's people. It's the prayers of God's people. And it's the Lord's table. And so you did that tonight, most of those. All three of those are going to take place here tonight. The church can't be without those and be effective. I'd like to invite you tonight to turn to Romans chapter 1. And while you turn there, I just want to say that uh, we are very grateful for your prayers and for your financial support. And I say that on behalf of the Tim Gosens as well as uh, uh, Dan and Liz Thompson, who you have sent support to, the Flinks, and I know I'm missing someone. That happens when you get up front, but the protos, that's right. Thank you so much for sharing with us in the Lord's work. And, you know, your prayers and your giving makes us co-laborers together with Christ, and that's a great privilege for us. So I'd like to turn your thoughts for just a few minutes to Romans chapter 1. And uh, if you'd look with me at verse, at verse 16. In verse 16, the Bible says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. Father, we would be remiss if we didn't pause and ask for your help. That we need your help to unfold the truth of Scripture. And Lord, we need your help, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to receive the truth of Scripture and to apply the truth of Scripture to our lives. And so we commit these moments into your care with that dependence. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, it's not always easy to come to a congregation where you don't frequently preach and know exactly what you should be sharing from God's Word. And certainly, having been together tonight and listening to you pray, I have no doubt that the Lord has led me to share some thoughts with you surrounding these verses that we have read. And I've t entitled this message, The Power of the Pristine Gospel. The Power of the Pristine Gospel. And when we talk about the power of the pristine gospel, we understand that we're talking about the gospel in its original condition. We understand that we're talking about an unspoiled gospel. And beloved, that's what, that's what the world needs today. 
And you have proven it here tonight because you have requested prayer for so many people who need Christ. And you have prayed for so many people who are without Christ. And you understand the fact that people need the Lord. People need the gospel. And people need an unspoiled gospel. During our many years serving the Lord in Argentina, we were accustomed to being called the locos. You know what a loco is? It's a crazy person, right? That's how they referred to Christians very typically in Argentina. And often Christians were just uh, made to look like they were uh, not only locos, but uh, dishonest and looking for your money and things of that nature, weighing people down with a list of do's and don'ts. I remember when we first moved to the city of Chivilcoy, we would try to get involved with people through uh, attending events, life events. And one time we got, we got invited to a birthday party for a seven-year-old boy. And we went just to meet people, just to show interest in those that had invited us. And I was standing there kind of by myself, and uh, this gentleman walked up to me, and he had a drink in one hand and a sandwich in the other, and he was chewing. And he said, so what do you do for a living? And I said, uh, I'm a pastor. And he said, oh. And he turned on his heel and walked away. Well, I would come to know this guy much better through the years. He never did get saved, but I did get to know him. We face those kinds of things all the time. You know you're tempted to be ashamed sometimes. Are, are you honest enough to say that, that sometimes we're tempted to be ashamed I think that we've all felt shame for something at one time or another. And, you, you know, you feel your neck getting red. You feel your ears turning red. Or you have that vein that pulsates in your neck and you realize that you're embarrassed at that moment. I think all of us understand that. The biblical word of shame means to be disgraced. It means to feel singled out because of misplaced confidence or for believing a lie. It's the painful feeling of humiliation that accompanies the error of embracing the wrong thing. And when we think of the Apostle Paul and we think of all that he went through during his ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to understand, we have to admit that despite his suffering and even what some would call humiliation and disgrace, we come back to the fact that the Apostle Paul was not ashamed. In fact, the Bible tells us so. In fact, he said it right here in this text. But we think of 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12 when he says, Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. And here he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And beloved, we need to be reminded of that. You know, there are some... There are some some incredible statements in scripture and this is one of them jesus said i will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it and here we're told that the gospel of jesus christ is the power of god unto salvation and that's how he's building his church to many the gospel is bad news well we know otherwise to many it's narrow and negative and by the way you don't have to uh, read too much or listen too much to the news to understand that people are openly saying things like this concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. Perhaps they're not using those terms, but that's what they're referring to. And there is sometimes in us that fear of ridicule. 
Sometimes we fear the rejection of those that we witness to. Sometimes we're afraid that people will get angry with us. We hate, the, we hate to feel stupid, and sometimes we think we're going to feel stupid if we speak out for Christ. We don't want to look folksy or uneducated. And those things, beloved, can feed our fear or our shame of sharing Christ. Because the gospel offends and because the gospel provokes controversy and hostility, and because a lot of people, Christians, don't want that, some tweak the gospel to make it more attractive. We are not of that crowd. Because we want to give a pristine gospel, an unspoiled gospel, an unvarnished gospel, a true gospel. The Apostle Paul said, For Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, that is man's words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 23. But we do preach the gospel. And we should preach it kindly. We should preach it graciously, lovingly. We should be sensitive to a person's dignity. We don't make them look foolish on purpose. But, beloved, the offense of the biblical gospel cannot be removed and it cannot be softened. Why? Because the gospel calls people to repentance and salvation And to most, that's simply crossing the line. To most, that's simply crossing the line. And yet Galatians 1, 8 and 9 tells us, Though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. Jude exhorted his readers to earnestly contend for the faith which was once, not twice, not many times, not for every other age or for every other religion, but which was once delivered unto the saints in Jude 3. R.C. Sproul said, And God will not hold us guiltless when we seek to improve on his gospel. There is only one gospel It's God's gospel, and it's our duty to believe it and to proclaim it in a pure and unvarnished fidelity to it. In fact, Romans 1.1 unequivocally sets forth the fundamental truth that the gospel is, is God's gospel. The gospel is God's possession, and beloved, we have no right to change it. We have no authority to change the gospel of Jesus Christ. God authored it. He declared it, Christ fulfilled it, and he sends us to preach it as is, unashamedly. Now, why was Paul unashamed? Why was he so bold? Why was he willing to leave all? Why was he willing to be rejected and humiliated and called a false apostle? Why why was he willing to be known as a fool, to be stoned and beaten and shipwrecked and lowered over a wall in a basket and in prison? Why was he debtor? Why was he ready and willing and eager and free to preach the gospel? Why? Very simply, because the pristine gospel of Christ is undiminished. And beloved, it's unequaled in its ability to transform lives. 
And that's as true today as it was in the day of the Apostle Paul. And there are four basic reasons why, and I'd like to share these with you in the moments that we have. And let me say, first of all, that the pristine gospel of Christ is undiminished and unequaled in its ability to transform lives because of its constitution. It's the power of God. You know that Rome was the world capital in power. It was the capital of power and military might. The Romans had no other God but who? But Caesar. And to say that the gospel is the power of God was an assault on the power of the empire and it was an insult to its reigning leader. And yet the apostle Paul said that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And that little tiny two-letter word is just asserts an incontrovertible fact about the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. And beloved, nothing has changed through the centuries. Nothing has changed. And that statement establishes the superiority of the gospel over every other existing power, no matter what that power may promise. Weiss defines power as natural ability, inherent power residing in a thing by virtue of its nature, which a person or a thing exerts or puts forth. The gospel doesn't contain power. The gospel is the power of God, the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the inherent omnipotence of God exerting itself in the lives of individual sinners for eternal salvation. And just as it just as it exerted itself 2,000 years ago, it does it today. And will continue to do it. So he doesn't say the gospel contains power. He says the gospel is the power of God. The gospel saves and the gospel transforms because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Beloved, that's why you support missionaries and that's why you pray for missionaries and that's why you gather here and that's why you leave from here and and the church scattered reaches out to its loved ones and its friends and its neighbors because the gospel of jesus christ is the power of god and the salvation nothing has changed it still is true today as it was in the days of the apostle paul do you realize how unsatisfied people are with life You see it around you every day, the people you work with. You see it on television. You see, if you watch too much TV, you see it in television shows because nothing good can ever happen in a television series. If someone gets married, they've got to get divorced. Everything always goes wrong. People are unsatisfied with life, and they're seeking changes. They're seeking changes that they believe will give meaning and purpose to their lives. And that's why people seek career changes and and people seek religion and they seek marriage. And when that doesn't work out, they seek divorce and they have kids to have meaning to life. And they move all, all around today. They move all around the globe to find meaning in life. People acquire wealth or status and education and all of these things seeking to find meaning in their lives. People reason, if I can do this, if I can, if I can be this, if I can get that, or if I can go there, I know I'll finally be happy. But it never works that way, does it? Only the gospel has the power to save and produce the abiding transformation that everyone everywhere needs. 
to the world, maybe the gospel's antiquated, everything phobic, out of touch, irrelevant, foolish, offensive, and intolerant. But despite what the world thinks, the fact, the incontrovertible fact still remains that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Beloved, that will never change. That will never change. The gospel is undiminished, unequaled in its ability to transform lives because of its constitution. It is the power of God but also because of its capacity. It's the power of God unto salvation. It has the capacity to save to the uttermost, to save completely in the words of Hebrews 7.25. The greatest manifestation of God's power is displayed in the salvation and transformation of an individual person. And that's what the gospel and only the gospel has the capacity to do. It is the power of God unto salvation. Now, you look at a little four-letter word, the word unto. It's a word that indicates purpose or intention. And that helps us understand that man's salvation from eternal damnation is the aim of the gospel. Our ability to glorify God and every single blessing that comes bundled with salvation depends on that initial redemptive transaction. To save means to be delivered. It means to be rescued. Well, what have we been delivered from? Well, the Bible tells us we've been delivered from Satan. It tells us we've been delivered from this perverse generation. We've been delivered from lostness. We've been delivered from eternal torment and separation from God in a literal hell. We've been delivered from sin's power. We've been delivered from the coming wrath of God, according to Romans 5.9. We've been delivered from gross and willful spiritual ignorance, according to 2 Thessalonians 1.8. We've been delivered from evil self-indulgence, Luke 14.26. We've been delivered from the darkness of false religion, Colossians 1.13. And I'm confident the list could continue. And beloved, this is the plane on which those to whom you are witnessing live today. This is the plane on which your unsaved loved ones and acquaintances and friends and neighbors, all of them live on that plane. And whether they know it or not, and whether they believe it or not, this is the reality of their present existence. Wherever you go, this is the condition of every single unsaved individual. And only one thing will ever change that, and that's salvation. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Do you know that to be saved is to be accepted in the beloved? Ephesians 1.6. To be saved is to be made a child of God, John 1.12. To be justified, Romans 5.1, indwelt by the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6.19, made an heir of God and joint heir with Christ, Romans 8.17, is to have received the divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4, to be under God's purposeful care, Romans 8.28, it means to be empowered to do His will, Philippians 4.3, and triumph over temptation, 1 Corinthians 10.13, 
To be saved is to be freed from the power of sin, is to be secured, John 10, cared for, 1 Peter 5.17, and provided for, Philippians 4.13, and so much more. Who wouldn't want to be saved? No wonder Paul proclaimed, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Nothing has the capacity to change lives like the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God Almighty exerting itself in the lives of individuals to rescue them and transform them. The gospel is undiminished. It's unequaled in its ability to transform lives because of its constitution and because of its capacity, but also, if you will, because of its compass. It is the power of God unto salvation. Listen, to everyone that believeth. Salvation is freely transferred to the account of everyone that believes. That's its compass. That's its scope. And the power of God to save is activated by faith. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And you understand that belief is not an isolated event. Belief is an ongoing action, an abiding state. And the idea of the text is that it is to everyone who is believing. Belief is not saying a prayer. It's not keeping a a lifelong list of rules. Belief is not a religion, it's not a philosophy, it's not a positive force, it's not a quality of life. Belief has been defined as being fully persuaded concerning the truth of something to such an extent that you exercise ongoing, full-blown reliance on it. In the Catholic culture of Argentina, we were accustomed to people uh, that we witnessed to saying very frequently, the most important thing is that you have faith. Well, that's not really true. Uh, That was just the standard anemic response of the person that didn't want to look like the heathen they were. You know, you just have to have faith. And it's not the faith that Paul was talking about. That's just faith in faith. It's not the object of saving faith. Paul's talking about that supernatural faith that is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's the absolute inner persuasion that God raised Christ from the dead. It's the exercise of full-blown reliance upon him, and and it results in salvation. And implicit in that, unless you think I've left anything out, implicit in that is believing that God raised him from the dead. Implicit in that is being persuaded about all that precedes the resurrection. Implicit in that is believing that he was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for my sin. And if I believe, I acknowledge my sinfulness. I sorrow and I change my mind about the direction of my life and I abandon my own useless righteousness and my insufficient works and my defective goodness and I exercise full-blown reliance upon the finished work of Christ on Calvary's cross. Salvation is transferred to everyone who by the grace of God exercises the gift of such faith. It doesn't matter who it is. Jew, Jew, Greek, and everyone in the middle. 
Biblical Christianity is not a Western religion, as they would make it out to be today. It's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and it's available without exception to everyone that believes, regardless of who they are, where they're from, or what they've done. So we say, the gospel is undiminished, unequaled in its ability to transform lives because of its constitution, because of its capacity, because of its compass, but also, and finally, because of its culmination, because of its culmination, for therein, speaking of salvation, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. You know, you read this, you might ask yourself the question, how does a person's salvation reveal the righteousness of God? For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. How does a person's salvation reveal the righteousness of God? Well, at salvation, the righteousness, God's righteousness is imputed to the believing sinner. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made what? The righteousness of God in him. The culmination of the gospel, listen, is the righteousness of God imputed to the believing sinner. That's a transformed position. And the believing sinner, by the grace of God, fleshing out God's righteousness in day-to-day living, that's a transformed practice. That's sanctification. The text says, Therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Now, that's a statement of exclusivity. It's a very intensive way of saying, by faith and faith alone, therein is the righteousness of God revealed. We could say, by faith and faith alone. He explains faith to faith by quoting Habakkuk 2.4. As it is written, the just shall live by faith and faith alone. So, beloved, a life saved and transformed reflects God, reveals God. It exposes to open view his hidden character and person by God's imputed righteousness being fleshed out in that person's character and conduct. And that person is you. That person is me. The just, the righteous, the saved shall live by faith. And I have underlined in my notes the words shall Live, I said save, I meant live. The just shall live by faith. It emphasizes two things. One thing, it emphasizes the fact that this will take place. The just will live by faith. Righteous, godly, biblical living is sequential to the imputation of God's righteousness. Righteousness will be tangibly fleshed out. One writer said, a righteous person is one justified by faith and showing forth his faith by his works. This should be so basic to us. I think it is. The second thing emphasized by the phrase is that faith is not a one-time event. It's a lifestyle or an existence of belief 
that accompanies the one whom God has imparted his righteousness. You see, the gospel doesn't just transform lives. It transforms them permanently. It's forever. This is how Christ is building his church around the world. And this is what he invites and commands us to live for. This is the outcome of salvation. This is why the gospel must be preached. For how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? Romans ten, fourteen through 15. So if you embrace Romans 1, 16 with undeterred conviction... And if you guard God's gospel without compromise, I assure you it will have a defining impact on how God will use you. If you don't minister with a conviction that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God and the salvation, do you know what ministry will be about? It certainly won't be about Christ. It'll be about you. It'll be about your sacrifices, all you gave up. It'll be about your success, the great big crowd that you've gathered. It'll be about your security. It'll be about your affirmation. It'll be about your leadership, your programs, your strategy, your converts, the size of your church. And you will tweak the gospel until it fulfills all of your fleshly values. And your gospel will only produce religious legalists and deceived self-satisfiers. That's why we say... Preach without shame the pristine gospel of Christ because that is the gospel that is the power of God. It is undiminished. It's unequaled in its ability to save and transform lives because of its constitution, because of its capacity, because of its compass, and because of its culmination. With that... I want to ask you to pray. Matt said I was going to give some update on GMSA. I think we gave time to what was most important, but I told him I was going to share one thing with you tonight. And I want to ask you to be in much prayer for this. Um, We are the gospel mission of South America, and our purpose is to glorify God by serving sending churches and their missionaries in facilitating the establishment of churches, reproducing churches in South America. We may have to take that in South America on there, off there someday. Uh, one of our missionaries has come to mission leadership and has asked to be authorized to lead a group of two couples, Chilean couples, a single Chilean, possibly a single Uruguayan, uh, to Eurasia to do church planting, to help them get established, help them get established in in, in a ministry there, in participating in a ministry, establishing a ministry, better said. And frankly, there are a lot of unknowns for us as a mission But we would like to ask you to pray for this endeavor. There is a young lady who is one of our MKs who is going over on short term and we're going to facilitate her going over on short term. And she will be teaching in a university, teaching English over there. 
And when the other team arrives, she's going to blend with that team, Lord willing. I want to ask you to pray for this. This is an exciting thing. Um, I think of it this way. I think old missions philosophy was that when a church was established, the circle of missions ended. But we know that's not true because the, the church that's established has the same responsibility as the churches that sent the missionary so I think of it as a slinky. How many remember a slinky? It just keeps looping, right? The responsibility just keeps expanding. And the churches in South America are stepping up. And we have people coming forth like these two couples and these two single ladies that want to serve the Lord in missions. And our concern as a mission is that we be willing to facilitate them. And so our purpose is to facilitate the churches, the sending churches, and their missionaries. And we think this falls within our range of purpose. So you pray for this endeavor, and you'll hear more about it in the future. Matt, thank you very much, and God bless you. With so many things going on in our lives and, and ours personally, I just had uh, lost track of that. We had talked about that on the board uh, level uh, some time ago, and uh, it's exciting to me. And, um, you know, we've kind of thought about, uh, you know, we have a special relationship here with Gospel Mission of South America. Ever since I've come to the church here in 1998, 99 maybe, I think we met Tom and Debbie and uh, we've always thought about gospel mission of South America like this, the gospel mission to South America. But I think we need to think of it as the gospel mission of South America, meaning to and from and in and out and everywhere. Um, and so it does require some retooling of our kind of culture and thinking, but it's important for us because, and, and I, when I went down to, um, I think it was in uh, Pirque, was it Pirque? I spoke to uh, the folks there. I was asked to speak on one particular issue, but I got into something else in one of the last sessions. And um, the, the issue came up, and it's come up many times, about church planting. What is our responsibility, not ours, but ours in South America for church planting? And I just said, just what Tom just said. Your responsibility is the same as our responsibility. We're to plant churches. You're to plant churches. You know, we're not. It's it's kind of like the mission agency was seen as the church planting arm of the local church. No, that's not right. That's not biblical. The mission agency is a facilitator to do that work. You see, it's a we're a tool to churches to be able to do that. So local churches are to plant local churches, and if they feel led by God and called to plant a church in some place other than South America, why, why does that mean we can't be involved? You know, So a great encouragement to hear that uh, churches are doing that down in South America. And uh, frankly, you know, we, need, we need it because uh, the American missionary endeavor is on the decline, isn't it? But some of these other countries are just... Uh, picking up the slack, as it were, and doing what God has called them to do. And they may be able to get into places we just simply can't because Americans are not welcome in certain places because of our politics and our mess-ups in the world and, and that sort of thing. So 
Anyway, enough said about that. It's 8.10 tonight. God bless you for coming. Thank you. Please hang around just for a little bit at least and uh, have some fellowship. Uh, Shake Tom and Debbie's hands and encourage them and uh, let them know you'll pray for them. And then we'll be on our way to uh, the rest of the week. Be strengthened. And uh, I know our brother likes to come and get a shot in the arm, as it were, and just be... uh, strengthen in the Lord uh, in the midst of the week. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for allowing us to participate in this meeting tonight and to watch it, if that's what we've done, and to uh, pray uh, earlier. And we just are grateful to you. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the gospel, the pristine gospel, which we've been taught. And we want to hold to it. We want to share it with others. We want to be faithful to it. We can not do that apart from you, God, and we pray through Christ and the Spirit of God that you will work that in us so that we may share that message, which in itself it is the power of God and the salvation, everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Lord, thank you for all that it entails and all that your precious gospel does for us and how we will enjoy its glories and its perfections and its blessings forever and ever world without end. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Good night, everyone. Have a little fellowship, please. And those of you online, thank you for participating tonight. Amen.